Our Old Testament lesson, which is also our sermon text, is Ruth chapter 4. Pay careful attention, for this is God's word. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, Tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it. For myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilian's and Mahlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and all the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that this woman will give you. The woman that the Lord will give you from this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who is, loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. 
Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and for your kindness to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we read your word today, that you would make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm going to do my level best to keep the sermons shorter while we're in masks. Um, But we've come at last to Ruth chapter 4, where the marriage and the child and the redemption that we've been waiting for is finally accomplished. And since this is the last sermon in this series, what I'd like to do is, um, instead of just walking line by line through the text, what I'd like to do is show how a number of the themes that we've been considering in the book of Ruth find their culmination point here in chapter 4. Each of the themes that we'll look at today is wrapped up in the redemption that we've seen pictured here, and all of them highlight some facet of our own redemption that we have in Christ. The first theme that we're going to look at is the theme in the book of Ruth that's the wisdom of kings. The wisdom of kings in the book of Ruth. Remember that this that Ruth is concerned with moving from the times of the judges to David. It starts with um, in the days that the judges ruled and the last word is the name of Israel's first great king, David. The need in Israel in the book of Ruth is not just for bread. It's not just the famine, but a wise and just ruler. And the author shows us how Ruth and Boaz embody the kind of wisdom that kings should have. The, king, the great kings of Israel... Um, David and Solomon and so on, all the way down to the Christ, are descended from Ruth and Boaz. And the author points out to us, he shows us how Ruth and Boaz both embody this great wisdom that kings need. We saw this in chapter 3 last time when we learned that Ruth is a virtuous woman, a wise woman, like at the end of the book of Proverbs. You remember the Hebrew word for that was Aset Hayil. She was able to go into a very tense, very dicey situation at the threshing floor, and she had the perfect wisdom to say the exact right thing at a very tense moment. And the theme of the wisdom of kings finds its culmination here in chapter 4 in the way that Boaz will do something similar with this closer relative. In the first three verses, Boaz goes to the gate and he calls a court. The elders sit down, this, uh, this man that is the closer relative sits down, and Boaz explains the situation to everyone, highlighting that Naomi has just come back from Moab and she's had to sell Elimelech's share of the land. And you'll remember that the Israelites, if at all possible, they were not supposed to sell their land because Ultimately, Deuteronomy tells us that the land belongs to the Lord. It was his promised land that he was allowing them to live in. 
And it represented, in a way, even their individual salvation. So if at all possible, you needed to hold on to your land. And yet, if you were forced to through hardship or um, being brought into slavery, then the law had a provision for a, a kinsman redeemer to come and to buy your land back for the family. But look with me at verse 4 and see how Boaz explains the situation to the elders and to this closer relative. He says to them all, And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. Now, if you're reading in the New King James, what I want you to notice is that for the whole rest of this verse, every time you see the word it, it's italicized, which means that this is a word that the translator has supplied for us. That in, in Hebrew, the subject of the sentence is actually not there. It's, um, it's an implication. It's ambiguous. And Boaz is going to use this ambiguity to be very shrewd and to great effect. Read with me for the rest of verse 4. He says to the, to the closer relative, If you will redeem, redeem. But if you will not redeem, tell me that I may know For there is no one but you to redeem, and I next after you. And then he said, I will redeem. Boaz sets it up. He asks this closer relative if he will redeem. But already in verse 3, he's mentioned two things. He's mentioned that Elimelech has passed away. He just mentions that in passing. But he also mentions that Naomi has sold her land. And then he asks the guy, will you redeem? And so what he's basically saying is, Naomi's family has experienced great hardship. Elimelech has passed away. Naomi's sons have passed away. And furthermore, they've even had to sell their land. You are close. You are a close relative. Will you redeem? You see the ambiguity there. What, What exactly is the subject? What is Boaz talking about? And the man He's in public, and this is a great opportunity for him to um, fulfill his duty as a redeemer, and uh, potentially it could be lucrative for him. So he says, I will redeem. And Boaz says, that's great, that's wonderful. Also, you should know that there is a Moabite widow in the family now, and if you want to redeem the family, you can raise up an heir with her to take the land that you buy back over once he's of age. Well, all of a sudden, this changes the calculation quite a bit for our closer relative. Look at verse 6. The close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. It's interesting to me that the, the Hebrew word where he says, I thought to inform you about this sold land, Boaz says to the man, in Hebrew literally it means, I thought to uncover your ears. I thought to uncover your ears about this. And then in a few verses, we're going to see the man's feet are uncovered. The way Boaz has set this up um, basically exposes, uncovers the man from head to toe. Once there's an actual cost to redemption, the man backs out. The way that, um, but what's really wise about the way that Boaz does this is he sets it up and as soon as the closer relative realizes that um, he's not only going to have to buy the land, but he's also going to have to raise up an heir 
for Naomi's family. And when this heir grows up, all of the land that he's purchased is going to go to this son instead of into his own family. He decides that's not something that I want to do. But the, the ambiguous way that Boaz set up the question also allows the closer relative an ambiguous response. In verse 6, when he says, I cannot redeem it lest I ruin my own inheritance. Well, that also can be taken a couple ways. He could either be saying, I can't redeem it because if I do and this heir grows up, I'll have to give, give, it, give it away, give it back to this heir, and that wouldn't be beneficial to me. Or it could even mean further, um, I don't want to marry a non-Israelite. I don't want to marry a Moabite. But the way he says it could also mean, I cannot in the sense that I simply can't afford it. When you were talking simply about buying the land, well, that I have the means to do, but to also support a family on it, I, I, won't, have the means to, I won't have the means to do, at, do that. But, but you, Boaz, you are a great man, a mighty man of wealth. You can, you can redeem. You've got the wealth to do this, and that's what Boaz sets it up, right? He says, if, if you're unable, then I'll be the next one in line. You see how shrewd that is? If Boaz had simply talked about it in terms of bare duty, if he had simply said to the man, um, Naomi's family is in trouble, and if you have the ability, you have the obligation, the honorable thing to do is to raise up an heir, um, what, if, what if the man had had the ability? He, he would have felt forced, compelled to do that here in this public setting. And Boaz would not have been able to redeem Ruth himself. But the way Boaz shades it and sets it up, he exposes whether the man has the ability to redeem, whether he has the willingness to redeem, and if he doesn't, he gives the man a public out. He can honorably walk away from the obligation and give it to Boaz, which is what he wanted all along. This is a, um, it's not tricky but it is very shrewd. It's very wise. The way Boaz walks into this situation and sets it up, he's able to render a judgment that just exposes the man's heart immediately. And Boaz's descendant, Solomon, would especially exemplify this kingly wisdom and the ability to render judgments that expose hearts. You remember the, the story of the, the two women who have the one baby and they need to figure out whose baby it is and they both lay claim to it. And Solomon's able to just render a verdict that immediately lays the hearts of the two women bare. And the ultimate example of this kingly wisdom is, of course, the Lord, our King Jesus, who when he was here on earth was able to perceive the hearts of men often immediately. And we know that before his judgment seat, Every mouth will be stopped and every excuse laid bare. This is the wisdom of kings. So often, we find ourselves in situations like Ruth did in chapter 3 or Boaz does in chapter 4, where we need this wisdom. We need the wisdom to know the right thing to say or the right thing to do. We need this righteous subtlety. And I'm not talking about simply being manipulative 
to get the ends that you want. I mean, the ability to say things that expose hearts or that motivate people to do the righteous thing. To lack wisdom in this life is very frustrating when you cannot uh, motivate your children to righteous acts or you can't motivate your employees or you don't know how to deal with a sticky situation at work or within your friends. Having this, having this wisdom from kings is indispensable. And so we need to ask ourselves, how did Ruth and Boaz acquire this wisdom? Well, I'm going to submit that they were the kind of people like the psalmist who loved and meditated on the law of God constantly and through it grew wise. Listen to Hebrews 4, chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The one who meditates on the word day and night, like the psalmist, will be wise and able to discern the hearts of men and to know the right thing to do in the right situation. Another theme that we've talked about a few times now is summarized in the Hebrew word hesed, or covenant love, covenant mercy. What the book of Ruth shows us is that hesed, or mercy and kindness, doesn't mean mercy and kindness instead of God's law. It means mercy and kindness through God's law. Ruth and Boaz both exemplify the ability to capture the spirit of the law and to live it out in their lives. Hesed, or kindness, truly is the end. It's the goal of God's law. You'll remember that Ruth goes well beyond her marital vows to her husband's family in chapter 1 when she pledges her loyalty to Naomi's family even past the point of death. She goes so far as to identify herself with Naomi. And that leads her to go out to the fields to glean for her in chapter 2 and even further to be willing to marry and bear children for the sake of Naomi's family. These aren't just merciful acts that she dreamed up, that she thought of herself. These are actually exemplary extensions of her marriage vows and the law of the Lord. Those things are the avenues by which she pours herself out for others. Do you see that? That it's God's law that shows her this is the path for you to take in order to extend your mercy to others. Boaz, for his part, invites Ruth, the widow, the foreigner, the poor, in off the margins of his field and lifts her up and provides for Naomi and Ruth to the point of overflowing. He takes the logic of the gleaning laws that we spoke about in Leviticus 19. He takes that logic and he just extends it and extends it and extends it. He fills it out to the hilt. And here in chapter 4, this theme of hesed through the law finds its culmination in verses 9 and 10. Read those with me. 
Boaz says to the elders and the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilian's and Mahlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Boaz is willing to fulfill, to fill up, not only the land redemption laws, but also the leveret marriage laws that we've referenced, to be a true kinsman redeemer. And I should mention that you might be like me. We, last time we talked about the, the laws for leveret marriage. Um, for years, I thought that pertained to the Levites. But that word leveret is actually from a Latin word, levere, the, the husband's brother. It doesn't have to do with the Levites. It's the law we referenced um, when we were talking about Ruth chapter 3, where if a woman died, and, if, or, sorry, if a woman's husband died and they had no heir, the husband's brother would marry her and raise up a child to inherit the land that the deceased man left. Boaz is willing to complete this law and the laws of redeeming the land to be a true kinsman redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. And notice that neither of these laws are obligatory in the Old Testament. Um, And neither are any of Ruth's kindnesses But she and Boaz both understand that hesed, that covenant mercy, is the end of the law. It's the point of these laws. And they're able to internalize the spirit of these laws and to make applications that go well beyond the letter. Let me say it this way. What what Boaz and Ruth understand is that whatever you surrender to God in accordance with his will... God will raise to new life. They understand that whatever you surrender to God in accordance with his will, God will raise to new life. Boaz gets all of the title to the lands here in verses 9 and 10, but see how he is so um, desirous to perpetuate the name of the dead, to give away his name to Ruth and to Elimelech. And yet... When we read all of the genealogies, whose name is in the genealogies? Is it Elimelech's? It's not. It's Boaz. Whose name is put on one of the temples in the temp, uh, put on one of the pillars in the temple that we that will be built later? It's Boaz. Whose name do we remember today in the scriptures? It's Boaz. What Boaz was willing to give away. In accordance with God's law, God saw to it that it would bear fruit and be resurrected. It's speculation, but perhaps as Boaz looked out over his fruitful harvest fields year after year, he understood the teaching of our Lord well in advance of his coming. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. Jesus gave that teaching, and he himself was the ultimate example of God's 
has said, God's mercy, his covenant love, and that he fulfilled the law of God completely and poured out his very life for us. And he is alive from the dead, and God has exalted him above every name and seen to it that his sacrifice has borne much fruit. And in a similar way, God places things into our hands, our possessions, our time, our money, our very lives. And his laws show us the way that we might exercise said towards one another. They give us the avenues by which we may fulfill the law toward one another. In contrast, this closer relative, and you'll remember Orpah as well from chapter 1, are content to keep what they have. They, they're not required to do the things that Ruth and Boaz do, and they're content to keep what they have And their actions are ultimately fruitless. There are those who give and give and give and give of themselves until they have absolutely everything. And then there are those who clutch tighter and tighter until they've lost all. Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever loses his life for the gospel, whoever loses his life in accordance with God's law, will find it. This, of course, brings us to the theme of the Redeemer. Since Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem in chapter 1, we have had our hope set on a Redeemer that someone would come and rescue them out of their plight. And the whole thrust of the story has been this move from the sojourning to the homeland, from the famine to the fullness, from the barrenness to the child. And we've been hoping that a Redeemer will come along and rescue them. And then once we were introduced to him, we've been hoping that it's Boaz. Now in Scripture... Up to, the, up to the, this point in the book of Ruth, um, the idea of a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, is closely related to the Lord himself. The Lord is the one who redeemed Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in Exodus. And he continues to be the one who is Israel's kinsman redeemer. Isaiah forty-one fourteen says, I, the Lord, am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your redeemer is the Holy One, of Israel. These redemption laws, these land redemption laws, these kinsman redeemer laws, the leveret marriages laws that we've all been studying over the last few weeks exist as a reflection of God's own character, his own actions toward Israel. Boaz is the ideal kinsman redeemer exemplified in these laws, and he foreshadows the great redeemer who will embody those laws in surpassing ways. Jesus is our relative, our flesh and blood through the incarnation, and he feeds us, not with the excess of his land, but with the bread of life, with his very self, with his very self through faith and at the table every week. Jesus came to us while we were spiritually destitute, 
and helplessly enslaved to sin. And at incredible cost to himself, he redeemed sinners through pouring out his blood on the cross and rising from the dead. Ephesians 1, 7 says that we have redemption through his blood. Jesus is the ultimate example of a redeemer. He gives us his name and his inheritance. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Just as Boaz was willing to give his name and his inheritance to the child that was born to Ruth, Jesus is willing to give his name and his inheritance as the Son of God and share it with us. And just as the book of Ruth is a story of redemption and marriage, so is the gospel. When Boaz incorporates the faithful Gentile Ruth into his family, that is when the Israelite Naomi is saved. And the new covenant likewise unites a multi-ethnic wife from around the world through faith to Jesus, a bride from the nations. The blood of Christ has taken those who were far off, you and me, and brought us near through his blood. It's no accident that in the Gospel of John, one of Jesus' favorite designations for himself is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom, and it's a title that points specifically to his role as a redeemer. And yet for all of this, the theme of the Redeemer finds its culmination not in Boaz, but ultimately in Obed. Look at verses 14 and 15. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, without a Redeemer. And may... And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Did you see that? It doesn't say that your daughter-in-law, who is better than seven sons, has married him. Think of all the sustaining and redeeming that Boaz has been doing here. But they said that this child, Obed, is the Redeemer. The name Obed means servant, and it's probably a shortened name of a form of the name Obadiah, which means the servant of Yahweh. And when we think of the servant of Yahweh, we naturally think of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 of a suffering servant who will do the will of the Lord and redeem his people. So Christ is symbolized by Boaz, but he's also symbolized by Obed. Christ is a husband, and Christ is a promised son. He is the seed of the woman. But he is also the husband who marries the widowed people and makes us, his bride, fruitful. All of these things are at work in this last chapter to point us to our Savior, our Redeemer, Christ. Truly, this is the gospel according to Ruth. I'd like to end by talking a bit about one more theme 
that is, runs throughout the book of Ruth, which is God's providence, God's work in and through creation. Ruth is a book that mentions the Lord directly very few times, but it highlights his providence in working redemption for both Naomi's family, for Israel, and for all of his people. And this theme finds its completion in chapter 4, verse 13. Read that with me. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. When we started the book of Ruth, we started with sojournings. We started with death. We started with famine, with alienation. And as the book has moved through chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and here and 4, we've seen the Lord redeem each of these problems, that Naomi and Ruth are brought back into the promised land, that they're filled, that they um, reconnect with their family. But we've been waiting for a marriage, and we've been waiting for a son. And verse 13 shows us that ultimately, it highlights that it was the Lord who gave Ruth the ability to conceive. Remember that Ruth was previously, had been previously married for 10 years, but had not had any children. So it's safe to assume that at least there were difficulties in her family with conceiving, if not barrenness. And so now, here in verse 13, the final piece that we've been waiting for in the redemption of Naomi's family has come, and the author highlights specifically that it is the Lord who's done it. This story has moved from tragedy to comedy. And the Lord, though, is the one who's using all of these things, the tragedy and the comedy, to work in the line of the Messiah and bring redemption for the world. Elder Peterson is fond of praying that line from the Heidelberg Catechism that nothing comes to us from chance, by chance, but all things come to us by God's fatherly hand. It was the Lord's hand, you'll remember, that went out against Naomi in chapter 1 and gave her all of the bitter providences in her life. But it was also the Lord's hand that happened to lead Ruth to Boaz's field and that happened to bring this closer relative to the gate at the exact right moment. And here, it is the Lord that grants Ruth a child. The genealogies at the end of the book remind us to take a longer view in God's work, in his providence, in God's work for our redemption. The book opened with a need for a king, and it ends with the word David, with Israel's great king. But look at these genealogies near the end here from 17 all the way down through 22 and notice all of the generations that we're talking about before we get to the king. Even with Boaz and Ruth, we're still three generations out from David and we're really four generations out from Solomon with the golden age of the monarchy in Israel. When we open up in the tumultuous time of Judges and we're looking for the redemption of the coming king, it's a number of generations even before we get to that. And we know that these genealogies only point forward to the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ and our full redemption. In a similar way, we need to take a long view of our own redemption, especially in regards to the difficult circumstances that we're all going through. In principle, Christ has accomplished our redemption on the cross and through his resurrection. But as Paul says in Romans 8, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. While we are still in our edemic bodies before the resurrection, while we are still living in a fallen world, there will be bitter providences, just like in Ruth chapter 1. There will be diseases, there will be death, there will be sin, there will be strife. But the stories in Scripture, like Ruth, point us to the resurrection of Christ and teach us to take the long view of our redemption. And it gives us hope that as we look to Christ's resurrection, we see in the future our own resurrection in Him, and we await our full redemption with hope. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the book of Ruth and for the clarity that it shows us of your son Jesus and our redemption that we have in him through his blood and the hope that we have in his resurrection. We pray, Father, that you would give us grace to wait for our full redemption with perseverance and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.